Welcome to another episode of the Capitol Record. I am so excited to be where we are here into 2023. Really enjoyed the conversation with Sam Rines last week, bringing you uh, a lot of our mutual forecast thoughts and whatnot about the year ahead in the economy. Now, uh, today I am bringing back another now three-time guest named Anthony Scaramucci. Um, a lot of people know him as the Mooch. He's famously served 11 days in the Trump administration as the White House communications director. Uh, he is the founder and CEO of Skybridge Capital, a leading alternative investment firm. Uh, he's somebody I've known for a good long time. And he has, for right or for wrong, decided to become a leading spokesman for the concept of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And he's going to talk with me today about the hard lumps they took last year, the uh, Sam Bankman-Fried experience, uh, the FTX moment, uh, what it's meant to him, what it means to us. And really, before we even get to some of the crypto talk, uh, there's just a whole lot of catching up to do. And I think you're going to find the conversation really enthralling. So with that said, allow me to welcome back on to Capital Record. For the third time now, as we launch our third year, my very good friend, Anthony Scaramucci of Skybridge Capital. Anthony, welcome back to Capital Record. Three years, my God. Well, first of all, congratulations on that. I didn't realize it was three years. God bless you for that. And uh, thank you for having me back on. I always learn something when I'm on with you. So uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I appreciate it. I guess it's a, it's a, we're starting the third year. So, you know, we'll see if we make it, but yeah, we, uh, we, we, kicked make this, we, we kicked this off at the beginning of 21. The first time you were on, we had one of my favorite conversations I've had since we started where we were talking through, you know, the notion of being a free marketeer, you and I both being fans of Milton Friedman. And yeah. yet we were kind of discussing uh, where we thought the state needed to play a role and where they didn't and what public private activity looked like and so forth. And then, and then of course the last time, which was a, a really popular podcast, you and I got to, uh, uh, talk a bit about those vaccine mandates. Um, are you on your seventh booster yet or anything? How's that all going? Yeah. I'm on my fifth, fifth, fifth booster, booster actually. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a, I'm a vaccine advocate. You, you've never had the vaccine, right? Or you no, I did. I, and that was something I said when we did the, yeah. the podcast, I was vaxxed. I never did do a booster. Um, and I did the J and J by the way. And I'll tell you a funny story. I had my physical, my doctor, you know, I do an annual thing with my concierge doctor. Right. He goes, you want us to run that antibody test? And I go, Oh, there's no point. Cause I got the vax. So I'm going to have the antibodies. And he goes, no, 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 you did the J and J. I said, what do you mean? He goes, the antibody test is only going to show you that you had, uh, it won't, you won't know if you had COVID or not, if you did the mRNA, because the same thing could come from Pfizer or Moderna that could come from prior infection, where with J&J, it's a spike protein thing. And if you show the antibody, it can't have come from your J&J. It would mean you had COVID before. And I came back with the highest level of antibody he had ever seen. But Anthony, I never had COVID. I, I I tried my best. I flew 200 times. I never wore a mask and I never got COVID and I got the highest antibodies. I did a J&J vax. I never got sick. I never did any of the boosters. And here we are. I kind of lucked out on this one. Well, 
first of all, God bless you. Second of all, uh, there's a few people I know that have not ever gotten COVID. You're one of them. I think it's awesome. Could be. But I clearly did get yeah. it, though. I mean, well, I had I to mean, have. you know, but you didn't have the symptoms. Let, let, me, let me rephrase that. There's people I know that have had COVID, don't realize they had COVID. They're asymptomatic. God bless you. I've had it twice. Um, the first time was rough. Second time was less rough. Um, and again, I opted to take the vaccine. Uh, everyone's different. Um, you convinced me that uh, it shouldn't be governmental mandated. I think you made that uh, very clear. Uh, but I also think, you know, I'm, I am pro-choice, okay, but I'm a Roman Catholic. So I am somebody that believes in the protection and, you know, therefore, quote unquote, pro-life, right? Or however you want to describe it, but that's my choice. And I also, we can get into it, but the First Amendment is very clear. You know, uh, I have my right to my freedom of religion. I don't necessarily think as a libertarian, I should be imposing my religious beliefs on others. Now, other people, you know, Jack Posobiec and other people that I know that I'm friends with, they believe, no, this is a life or death issue. This is a murder and, and so forth. And they're taking a different position than me. It's not clear to me. And what I would tell my Catholic friends, they get very upset with me. Well, if it starts at the inception, then why aren't we having funerals for miscarriages in the Catholic Church? And so you, no, no one can answer that question. So maybe the Pope at some point will answer it. But my, my, my feeling on this thing is it's unsettled. It's my religious belief. And I think we have to be very careful with our religious beliefs in a society like ours uh, where we want to protect people's religious freedoms. Well, b believe it or not, listeners, we are going to be very shortly talking about <laughs> crypto and Bitcoin. This is the greatest but, thing. Um, I, I, have, I have a simple rule of thumb. Whenever uh, issues of social conservatism and religious right and right. moral issues right. come up um, is I very rarely on an economics podcast initiate it, but if someone else brings it up, then I get to get to chime in. And as a Protestant who's who has most of his very a lot of my very close friends are Roman Catholic, and I consider us all part of the same ecumenical faith uh, that follows the same creeds and believes in the same triune God. Um, I always have to remind my Catholic friends that you don't have to have any question about this issue because your Pope has spoken for you. And I, as a Protestant, am not under the papal authority, but as a Catholic, it's all settled. You already know what the church has said about abortion. So we're good, man. Well, yeah, we're listen, I mean, we should move on. But I, my, 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 whole, my whole point <laughs> is, is that like, you know, we're in a libertarian society for me. I want I want people to have their own choices. I want them to have their own freedom. Um, you know, again, we can go into it. I don't want people to yell fire at a theater. I don't want there to be hate crimes that incense, you know, incentivize violence and things like that. Okay. Uh, you know, so, you know, there's got to be some restrictions to the freedom of speech, of course, uh, but not many, you know, and I'm, I'm going to be debating yep. Kara Swisher on Twitter. I don't know what your thoughts about Twitter now, uh, but I applaud what Elon Musk is doing. I think what Elon Musk is trying totally. to do is a radical moderation. It's not radical right wing thinking or radical left wing thinking. It's radical moderate thinking. He's trying to open up the square. Somebody like Elon Musk is smart enough to know that we've disconnected a good 20% of our fellow Americans from our society. 
I think we could make that statement about other Western democracies. There's a very large group of people that I grew up with, David, who feel left out. You know, they were once in economically aspirational working class families. That's the family I grew up in. Those very same families are now economically desperational and they've checked out. They, you know, they reject the establishment, the political establishment, business establishment, medical establishment, and they want, uh, they want nothing to do with anything media related because of these things. We have to figure out a way to bring those people back into the fold. I, I, you don't want 20 to 30% of your fellow Americans to be disconnected from the society or, or feeling that they don't have a fair shake in the society. So, you know, for me, what Elon Musk is doing is, uh, is something that I applaud. Um, is he doing it perfectly? Who could do it perfectly? Nobody can. We're human beings. But is he going in the right direction? I believe he is. I'm with you completely, and I, I hope you you walk into that moment with Kara very prepared, as I know you will, um, because I don't think that Kara Swisher and her ilk do uh, care about free speech. I think I think their their issue is um, it's not about the, even just the moderate speech; it's really about whose speech, and and that's the part that bothers me. Is um, I think that if what Elon if Elon were doing what they're saying he's doing that he was just the inverse of, of the other. One wants to block right-wing speech. One wants to block left-wing speech. First of all, a lot of the stuff that was going on was not right-wing speech, okay? I'm a movement conservative, and I didn't want COVID misinformation out there, and I didn't... And, and the Hunter Biden laptop story, I haven't spent five seconds thinking about my entire life. Um, at the end of the day, I don't agree, by the way, with the, their people's different opinions on the transgender issue being referred to as hate speech. Someone can be right. Someone can be wrong. You can allow this stuff, but it's pretty legitimate in American socio-religious tradition to have different opinions and conventions on that issue and to throw people off because they're holding to a certain viewpoint that was basically the viewpoint for 99.9% .9 of our country's history. Um, I, I think that's where this was clearly becoming more discriminatory the other way. But the, the thing, Anthony, that's so interesting about the VAX issue is that you and I were and are on the same side of that issue. I still now, even with the VAX being largely discredited as a way of stopping transmission, still believe it was incredibly effective at limiting severity, well, then, there's data that's saving lives. There's scientific data that supports that. So, so you yes. know, and I and I believe my. But the, but the problem is that those that were most vigilantly um, for vax mandates, making us show cards at restaurants, running away with saying things that they couldn't have known were true yet. That, like as the current president said, if you get the vax, you won't get COVID. By saying that before we knew it was true, you now have gazillions of people that you and I are never, ever, ever going to persuade that the vax did save yeah. lives. And I think you're right about that. Too, and, 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 that's that, and I just think that that needs to be a lesson for the future. Yeah, and I think that's a big problem because ultimately that level of disinformation that we're both discussing is a big, is a big problem because, I mean, listen, you don't need me to talk about this, but I'm going to share it anyway. I really believe that our problems happened when we allowed the American public to disengage from the armed forces. 
And so there'll be a lot of left-leaning people that'll be very upset with me for that. But let me explain why. When we had 35, 40% of our families tied in some way to the American military, which happened during the Second World War and at the end of the Second World War, we came out of that environment way more together. So if you had George McGovern, who was a Democrat, and Bob Dole, who was a Republican, they didn't go after each other in this sort of nonsensical tribalism. They both recognized that they were living in the spirit of America and the American experiment. And since they both served in the war, in the armed services, they had this mutuality of respect and some degree of civility. We were also more connected. So if I grew up in New York and you grew up in Kansas or you grew up in Newport Beach, California, then you may have had biases against me uh, uh, or because I'm a New Yorker. If you served in combat with me, I may have earned your respect and therefore we bonded. It created more unity in the country. So now you break up the country by no longer having that service requirement. You end up uh, in a bad war, the Vietnam War, several other bad wars, I might add. And then you have this breakup of our community as it relates to cable television, as it relates to social media, as it relates to tribalism. So we're all in our own confirmed biases. You see, I'm, I'm looking behind you and you have Fox News on and you have CNBC. Most people have one or the other. I think what makes you so yep. interesting and why your clients respect you is you're looking at both. You're trying to discern the information uh, and filter through the bias. But that's not generally what happens. What happens is we get on our own little concentric tight circle and we sort of live and breathe our confirmed biases. And, and I will say this. Um, when I landed in Albuquerque, New Mexico in May of 2016 on the Trump campaign, and I saw the people coming to visit Mr. Trump, um, he missed nothing. I missed it all. I grew up in a blue collar family. I should have seen what he was witnessing and what he felt. He felt that desperation. I didn't. I was in the salons of the wealthy. I was hanging out at RAA conferences. I was hanging out at Davos. I was going to the salons of the wealthy at these investment banking conferences. And so I was getting the confirmed biases of coastal elites, even Republican coastal elites, I might add. It could be Republican or Democrat. Sure. I was missing the economic and social anxiety of the people I grew up with that didn't get lucky enough to go to Harvard or Harvard Law School or wherever. Okay. And so um, for me, um, that was a very big rock that hit me in the head. And it, it, is, it is guiding me over the last six or seven years. And basically, I'm telling you right now, uh, we, business leaders, community leaders, political leaders, we have to figure this out. We have to figure out a way to bring those people back in the fold. And so when Elon Musk says, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm going to try to level the playing field, uh, that's a step in the right direction as a business leader and as, a, as, as someone that's now has the, uh, the calm, so to speak. He has the captain's share in what is becoming the community square. Well, and I, I agree. I think, I think that issue you said a moment ago is really um, important about people being stuck in a kind of self-selected um, hamster wheel. And, uh, and this is where technology, we, we can't underappreciate how much it feeds it because now they can out, like it used to be, 
I'm a conservative and I buy conservative books, but now I'm a conservative who buys conservative books and there's an algorithm telling me what books and articles and things I'm going to already like. And I know you very well in this regard. You're good because you've recommended books to me that I read and I'll be honest, I hated them, but I appreciated reading them because I need to read stuff I don't agree with sometimes. It makes me more intellectually honest. Yeah. It's always possible I can get persuaded on something yeah, too. But I, I think it's good. Who was the guy back at post-crisis who wrote the big thing on wealth inequality? Pickety, Pickety, Thomas Pickety. Pickety. Yeah. I, I struggled so much, Anthony, to read that book because I thought it was garbage. But I really wanted to be intellectually capable of refuting its, its theses, and I couldn't do so if I didn't yeah. read it. But my Amazon algorithm is never going to tell me to read Thomas yeah. Piketty. Well, I mean, you know, he wrote a book called Capital, and it was basically fairly Marxist in what he was saying, okay? And, and by the way, by the way, if we lived in a normative society where we lived in a society of ought, like this ought to be a certain way, I would want there to be more economic fairness certainly would okay there are benefits that we sometimes get that we're not even aware of it could be from our socioeconomic standing it could be from our biases i'm sure we're going to get to sam bankman fried in a second but sam bankman fried was profiled as a brilliant young man if you looked at his pedigree and his parents and where he came from he was getting the benefit of the doubt from these totems of success, you know, the Stanford, MIT, that sort of thing. And so, so what Piketty is basically saying in the book, which is, does make sense to me, is that a lot of times we're born into certain circumstance and we get some direct benefit from that. And there are other people that are born into different circumstances and they may get direct disadvantages from that. And so, you know, I've, I've changed my tune on this, okay? I am not about equal outcomes. I think that's where Piketty gets everything wrong. Uh, you can't have equal outcomes in a human society where we are, frankly, very different. But I am for equal opportunity. I am for trying to come up with a platform of equal opportunity for people because you didn't pick your birth, you didn't pick your parents, I certainly didn't pick mine. And if you're born in our country, we should be smart enough uh, and from a policy point of view, better, good enough to at least give somebody a chance to get to the starting block. That includes, you know, public school education or some form of education. You know, it could be a charter school education, something to help somebody advance uh, if they have the willingness to advance, you know. So, so P Piketty got a lot wrong. But one thing that I do agree with him on is a lot of the things that uh, you or I could potentially take for granted Okay, we shouldn't. We should recognize that there are imbalances. You know, if you tell me the zip code of the child, I can tell you whether or not that child can get a good public school education in the United States. And there's an unevenness to that. Well, there is. What's interesting, by the way, is that those people who are most um, uh, upset about the inequality of people's initial life station are the people most unwilling to pursue school choice initiatives that can change that. And, and so on this one issue where there actually is a pretty easily, readily apparent policy solution to some form of better school choice that might do something mm -hmm. 
to to um, bridge that the delta between good school districts and bad school yeah. districts by allowing parents to make parochial school or charter school or private school decisions all within the same fiscal um, bag that is being used to fund the current school. Um, that it's interesting to me that the people most opposed to that are the people that most are, are outraged by that situation. But I'm, I'm one who agrees with you about the station one is born into in life in the right American ideal does not have to be the station that they end up in in life. And in fact, it isn't. We have an incredible capacity for mobility. It's one of the most disingenuous things about the data about wealth inequality is our first quintile wealthy and our fifth quintile wealthy are further apart than ever. And yet the fifth quintile wealthy are filled with people, uh, excuse me, the third quintile wealthy are filled with people who used to be fifth quintile wealthy. Yeah. Well, I mean, Charlie, and, and, that, and that's a very important thing. Well, Charlie Munger has a great, great insight into that, actually. I don't know if you've ever heard of what Munger has said about that. He said, you know, he's 99. He believes he's the yeah. reincarnation of Ben Franklin, which is sort of humorous. Uh, but what Munger says is that he thought the world was driven by greed, but in the age of social media, it's more driven by envy. And so even though we've had a yeah. 6x improvement in living standards, and even though capitalism has raised so many people out of poverty into some level of economic wealth and success, because of the comparative analysis that we do as human beings – we breed some envy and we see this very filtered social media world and we get very upset that somebody has more than we do or we get anxious or we feel left out or we feel um, disappointed in ourselves and it creates a lot of unhappiness and that that's unfortunate, you know, and I, and I, I don't necessarily know how you convince people. I can just tell you from my upbringing that, uh, you know, where I am today, I am immeasurably grateful. You know, I, my father, when I got my job at Goldman, he's 87 now. He worked as a crane operator his whole life. He was in the union. He was an hourly worker. He turned to me uh, and he said, hey, I never want you complaining about that job. I said, okay, why is that, Pop? He goes, well, let me tell you why. He says, you're indoors, you're out of direct sunlight, and there's no heavy lifting. So whatever the hell's going on on that job, is way better than what's going on in these jobs, you know, where you're out in hot and cold weather, oiling the crane, losing your hearing because they weren't smart enough to didn't know it better enough to put the hearing protection on and all this other stuff. And and you, when you grow up like that, you do get an appreciation for the bandwidth. OK, you know, there was a seminal moment in my life in 1972. It happened in March. You say, what the hell is he talking about? I was in the uh, I was in the second grade. And it was March of 1972. It was a very happy day in my house. When I came home from school, my mother and my grandmother were ecstatic. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And what had happened while I was at school, a washer and dryer was delivered to the house and put into the unfinished basement of the house I grew up in. And so for the first eight years of my life, and again, unbeknownst to me, my mother and grandmother were hauling the laundry to the laundromat. They were putting coins in the machines and laundering the clothes and bringing them back to the house. And my father had finally saved up enough money to purchase a washer and dryer. They thought that this was the greatest day ever. Okay. And so, 
So, um, and again, I, I would never dishonor my dad, David, by telling you I grew up poor. I did not grow up poor. I was in the middle class very comfortably. They were very conscientious. I would never dishonor my dad's net, you know, his value or his work ethic by suggesting I grew up poor. Did not grow up poor. But I did experience the bandwidth of going from a house with no washer and dryer to where I am today. I have seen the continuum of that. And as you go up the continuum, it's sort of bizarre to say this to you, but there's varying levels of entitlement. You know, and 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 I, what I would say to people is, you know, you're mistaken if you feel entitled. You know, you got to start from the base. Be grateful that you're up today. You're above ground and you got today to enjoy. Hopefully you'll make it through the whole day and you start again tomorrow. But when you start living in a world of entitlement and then things don't happen for you the way you expect or you feel you're entitled to, that's where you make that's where that's where things get really nasty for you. You know, I had a shitty year. No, no doubt about that. I, uh, I think everything that I did in 2022, I more or less got wrong. I had a foray into crypto that worked in 21. It did not work in 22. Again, I can blame it on the overall markets, but let's face it, that was uh, a decision I made. Uh, the overall markets are down. Certainly, I can take some cover in that, but let's just be self-accountable. I made some mistakes um, in business. I decided to go into business with Sam Bankman-Fried. I perceived him to be the second largest cryptocurrency exchange. He had a Tiffany reputation in Washington. We can revise history now because of what happened, but I can tell you back in October when I traveled with him to Saudi Arabia, he was a rock star. He was being greeted by you know, people as a luminary and a celebrity and a rock star. I thought I was teaming up with the Mark Zuckerberg of crypto. Uh, but I got the Bernie Madoff of crypto. And so, you know, it is what it is. But I'm just saying to you, the good news for me is my expectations were grounded and set by my upbringing. So I am indoors, I'm out of direct sunlight, and there's no heavy lifting. So you'll never hear any victimhood from me. You'll never hear me any woe or self-pity. I'm super excited about where I am right now. And I'm super excited about the future and where things are going. And by the way, because things have lost value, uh, and we can make an argument whether things are overvalued, undervalued, or fairly valued, we can make those uh, arguments, but things have lost value. You know, this NASDAQ's down a third, 33%. The S&P's down 20. It's the worst year since 2008, the worst first half since 1970. Again, you know, maybe we're going lower. I don't know. We can talk about it. It feels like we probably will go lower for a period of time. But at some point, we will stop going lower and economic innovation, technology, biotechnology, pharmacology, all the great things about human progress will kick in. Things will get to a fair value and long term investors that don't get nuts uh, will be rewarded. You know, and so we, you know, we, you know, you've heard me say this. I'll say it on your podcast. You know, everyone's a long term investor. They'll have short term losses. I mean, they have short-term losses, they flip out, and they go crazy. And so, you know, that's fine. But uh, I'm a long-term investor. I'm in it for the long pull. And I, and I do see this like I saw 2009. People ask me, Skybridge was battered hard in 2009. And people say, well, what the hell are you going to do? I said, you know, I don't know. I, I got high integrity. Opportunities will abound. People who have high integrity, they can always open a door to a new opportunity. 
And lo and behold, I bought Citibank's business and I created the SALT conference. And so I see this moment in 2023 as a similar moment to that. And I'm already having discussions about some really strategic and fun things. And so my message to your podcast listeners and viewers is uh, shake out the noise, follow the signal. Uh, and the signal is for long-term growth, long-term progress. And uh, But, you know, listen, if you're not capable of acknowledging your mistakes and owning up to and being accountable for what you're getting wrong, you'll repeat those mistakes. So you have to really look at the stuff clinically. doesn't mean you have to dwell on it, but you have to say, okay, here's what I got wrong. Here's why I got it wrong. How am I going to avoid that in the future? So there, there's a lot to unpack there, and I, I appreciate your candor. You know, one of the things I think your dad's um, kind of formulation around when one's working indoors, one is not working with machinery and, and physical labor and, and uh, under direct sunlight, that those things kind of symbolically represent this great pickup in quality of life and in, in those opportunities and, and whatnot. The other piece to it is that you chose to do so, right? That you even had yes. the choice to not go to the factory or not yeah. go to the farm or the fields. And that's where Piketty and these guys will be more wrong than anything is in ignoring the very vehicle, the venue for improving people's quality of life, uh, mobility, dynamism, um, social cooperation, I might add, that markets represent. You not only got to avoid um, working with your hands outdoors, but you got to do so through a path that you were able to choose. And that choice is a byproduct of the division of labor that markets make possible, of specialization, of uh, price discovery. You know, you knew that there was a premium to be found if you were to go to Harvard Law, if you were to go to Goldman Sachs, some of the more elite institutions you happen to be a part of. I didn't go to those elite institutions, but I did know that hard work and certain marketable skills paid. And I knew that because of price discovery and those things go away apart from markets. And so I'm grateful for everything your dad's grateful for and that he points out to you. You and I both came from more humble and modest places and, and both have achieved certain successes. But I, I and like you, I, I think about it every day. I don't ever take it for granted. I, I, my life is overwhelmed with gratitude. And a lot of what I am constantly grateful for is not only my father, my God, my friends, the people that have helped mentor me and teach me, but I really am grateful for freedom. And I'm grateful for markets by which we can do that because if all of these things were true, but we were in a feudal economy or in, in an economic framework that most of mankind has lived under for most of mm -hmm. history, it wouldn't matter. You would be at that well, same factory. You well, would be doing whatever you're well, doing. Well, not, not only would I agree with you, but let's just talk about it because this is the stuff that we have to figure out a way to hit the refresh button for this uh, generation. You know, When I was a kid, Ronald Reagan said that uh, we are – always one generation away from losing our freedom. And I remember thinking, well, that's a stupid comment. I mean, my God, we're one generation away from losing our freedom. My, my freedom is sacrosanct. It's an axiomatic fact. And of course, as I got older, I realized how stupid I was at that moment. And I realized how wise 
Ronald Reagan was to say that because ultimately we have to hit the refresh button. Ultimately, we have to restate it and we have to make sure that people understand that the freedom you know, comes from the subordination to the law. What did Cicero say? He said that we're slaves to the law in order to be free. Uh, we we yep. can't live under the rule of man. We have to live under the rule of law uh, because once we do that, uh, we can have freedom. We have decentralization. You have checks and balances in the country to prevent an autocracy. And so what do we know about those places that you're talking about? The feudal places. We know that Centralized power creates corruption. Centralized power creates this uh, lack of meritocracy. It creates this uh, unbalance, this this uh, bad market forces, if you will, because certain people are currying favor up against the government and other people can't get a break. And so, you know, we have to continue to stress the flatness of the society because people like you and I are not getting to where we are. You know, I read this uh, beautiful essay uh, a few years ago, which you would enjoy. If I can find it, I'll dig it up. But it was about the GI Bill. And the man basically wrote that he grew up in the uh, Lower East Side. He grew up in East New York. His father was a tailor. He went to the army. He was a Jewish kid. uh, And unlike the stereotype, he wasn't from a rich Jewish family. He was from a poor Jewish family. But he went to the American infantry. He served in the Battle of the Bulge. And when he came home, they told him that they would pay for his college through the GI Bill. Went to Pace University and became an accountant. And he went on to have a very successful white-collar job. And he basically said in this article, it was beautifully written, imagine the greatness of this country. They took kids from East New York. They took people from immigrant suburbs or immigrant slums or whatever you want to call the places and said, you know what? You're going to go to college. We're going to pay for it. Okay. And it took a generation of people that thought they were going to be their parents operating a crane or having a needle in their hand or sewing or whatever your dad did, you know, and they said, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to educate you and we're going to put you into the workforce at a different station than your parents. When you think about it, the way he described it. And of course, I'm not doing it justice. It was such a beautiful rendition of what America is about and what America is trying to create, the opportunities in America. You know, and it's important for us to, you know, how do, all right, so how do we do that? We got to make sure that that kid, you know, we have this grievance culture now, we have this culture of victimhood, we have a woke culture, it's this very thin layer of super self-important people that want to pass judgment on the rest of us and the extent that they can due to their varying grievances and sub-hatreds. They want to cancel people that they don't like or they feel have misspoken somewhere. How do we put an end to that nonsense? And how do we focus on getting these people uh, who feel like they don't have hope or choices to uh, reflect that perhaps maybe they do? Uh, just like you just described about your choices or my choices or the things that were available to us when we were kids. And I think that um, that a lot of people of good faith are thinking about those things. I think those at um, the Acton Institute, at National Review, um, I, look, I think there's some in the center. Uh, I don't think there's a lot in the far left. 
thinking that way because I do think there's a sense in which the there's a governing ideology that believes that um, real extravagant wealth needs to be punished, where you're not talking about having a punitive approach to wealth and affluence. You're talking about having an opportunistic and aspirational environment for everybody. And what I just want to repeat, because it's at the essence of this very podcast, and I swear to you, Anthony, it's at the essence of everything I mm -hmm. believe in my entire life, what I've dedicated the next four decades of my mm -hmm. life to. I want people that grew up in a middle-class household in Long Island or grew up the son of a not very well-paid preacher to have opportunities to move their station in life. And I don't just mean it economically. There is a lot of social capital that comes with economic capital. Uh, I don't get real excited about that stuff, but I recognize it. I know it's true. Um, I want people to have opportunity to flourish to live happy, meaningful, fulfilling lives. And I believe that liberty and virtue are two necessary ingredients towards that. And I see a lot of people that don't care about virtue. And I see a lot of people that don't care about liberty. And, and what I want for those that do not have a lot of the um, opportunities or right now a lot of the blessings in their life that, that I've been able to enjoy I want them to have it, and I, I don't feel that there's enough people committed to the playbook because the playbook is not – I can't make anybody richer by making Elon Musk poorer. And, and by the way, last I checked, Elon Musk is on paper a lot poorer in the last year than he was a year ago just in terms of some of these things that I guess a lot of the progressive left likes. I guess, you know, but imagine imagine the unfairness of an asset tax on somebody like Elon Musk. Okay, so – you know, he, wow. you know, he he lost, I don't know, however many billions of dollars, but then you'd be taxing at this number, then when the number's down there, you give the money back to him. It was just nonsensical. So so I mean it's just it's just and also you're you're gonna tax capital in a way that's going to incentivize people not to invest it. I don't even get it. It's so 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 but Or to form it or to form it to yeah, begin yeah, exactly. with because capital formation no, no, does. No, exactly. But here here's here's the thing, you know, I, I I'm always, I always find this part of the, the argument extremely frustrating. And you said something that I think needs to be reiterated. A lot of these people are actually from an elitist origin. You know, they sit there and say, oh, I should feel very guilty about all of this benef benevolent things that have happened to me. So let me wax on about socialism and let me wax on about uh, liberal elitism. And I'm sitting there looking at the person saying, well, what you're doing is you're preventing those people from having what you have, okay? Because you're trying to create disincentives and caps and all kinds of nonsense. Why don't you just empower the people? Now, where some of my conservative friends get upset with me, I am about the public school system. That doesn't mean I'm not about the charter school system. I certainly want to have that laboratory and I want that laboratory of competition. But I think as a realist, we're educating our children in this country by and large through the public school system. And so we have to cure the public school system. Ken Langone, who you know is a big mentor of mine, a close friend, uh, has always said that to me. He got a public school education. I got a public school education. It was at a time in the country where it was very, very good public schools. Okay. Uh, they're now very uneven. We got to fix it. We have to fix it. And so, you know, some of it, some of it can be done. 
some of it can't be done. I'm not, again, I'm not foreclosing charter schools. I'm just saying, man, we got to get this public school system fixed because it is, it is a disaster for some people. Anthony, do you think that there are really great, talented investment bankers and traders and intellectual capital at J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and um, other elite firms that are not named Goldman Sachs? Yes. Why? Why do you say it that way? Yeah. The re- uh, follow, let me yeah. let me wa- mm-hmm. walk through this. I do too, and I think that if there was no competition, Goldman Sachs would be a worse firm. Goldman Sachs is an elite Wall Street firm that you came from that um, I don't think it's stellar right now in private wealth management, but they're stellar in trading and institutional securities and investment banking and deal making. And the fact that there is a Morgan Stanley and a JP Morgan and a Citi and a B of A and whatnot out there makes Goldman better for the same reason that everything else in a market system works, that competition forces one to do better to price better, to perform better. I don't understand why schools would be different. Don't we create better public schools by making them compete with private schools, charter schools, parochial no, no, no. schools? I, no, no, no. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Oh, I might have argued. No, no, no. I agree, I agree with all of that. I'm arguing with the teachers. I know, of course, basically. but I agree with all that. But here's the problem. There are certain areas of the country, unfortunately, where you can't get – the population or the entrepreneurs or whoever to create the charter school and the population's left with that one choice, which is the public school. And I agree with you. We want to have more competition and you want to have, you know, you, that you want to have a laboratory of experimentation to improve the education. You know, you know, my, my son who you've met, he's a uh, 30 year old Stanford business school graduate. He says to me, so, we go to Steven Spielberg to make the movies. Okay. And we go to George Lucas to make the movie and he's considered the best in the field. You know, why are we still running these public schools from a platform of the specific community where we can have some of the best educators in the world, you know, beamed into the public school, you know, beamed into the zoom call, beamed into the uh, experience. The curriculum can be overhauled. Um, and it could be a competition that way too, where you say, okay, Hey, listen, you're going to teach third grade math or, you know, whatever it is. And here's a request for proposal and we're going to pay you to beam into our classroom. Uh, and again, maybe it's not a super effective. People say the teacher needs to be in the class. Okay, fine. But there could be a hybrid model where you have some brilliant person that's the top of their game is getting paid tons of money because they're doing it in tons of places around the country. You know, the point is, is that like the public school systems are like us running the high school musical. When, when you go to Broadway, they're drawing from the entire world's talent to select the actors and the dancers and the singers and things like that. There are so many things that we can do from an experimentation point of view to make these places better that are barricaded by this old school sort of thinking. You know, you you know what a rubber room is. You know, I... I was on the New York City Financial Services Advisory Board 15 years ago for Mike Bloomberg. I didn't know what a rubber room was. I'm embarrassed to tell you that. I didn't know what it was. And then when they explained it to me, I said, wait, wait, what? Oh, yeah. So, you know, the teacher doesn't perform, but we can't fire the teacher, but we got to get the teacher out of the class. So we put them in an empty, vacant class 
where they come in and stare at the wall for nine hours or six hours, whatever it is. They go home and then we try to find somebody else to teach the kids. Wait, what? We're not firing the teacher? No, no, we're not. We're not firing the teacher. They're in a rubber room. Okay, guys, come on. We got, we're better than this. We're better. This is not about left or right, David. This is about right or wrong. It's that we're better than this. Okay, yeah, good, well, good luck with that, Anthony. And so it's 15 yeah. years later, we still have rubber rooms. Well, and that's, and that's where I think that the, uh, the desire to see these opportunities be available for everyone, um, I don't think is shared by all. I think that there are some, there's a bureaucracy, there's a power struggle, um, there is the politics of it, right? Where, where the, the teachers unions, I think there's a lot of corruption. That, that's not a, a disagreement about how to best administer education. It's corrupt. When, when you can't get rid of those people and resources are forced to be deployed into that which is ineffective and unproductive, uh, as opposed to redeploying resources into innovation, into new talent, into new creativity. And the people who suffer there, the quote unquote customers are the children. It's immoral. And, and uh, who was the guy that you had at Salt that we did the private dinner the one night and Nikki Haley was there and we, and um, Valerie Jarrett was there, but it was the guy from the school deal. Oh, what's his name? What a fascinating guy. Who's created that kind of online? Um, I'm just drawing yeah, a blank no, no, on his no, name. It's you know Saul Kahan. It's Kahan Academy. Yeah, Saul so, yeah. Kahan. Yeah, no, I, Kahan. Yeah, I'm, I'm tight with him, and I'm one of his donors, and uh, he's done a beautiful yeah. job. And you can go, and you know, my kids use him. My older kids used him. You can go on his website for free, and he'll explain math to you. He'll explain physics. There's a whole learning laboratory, and this is my point. Yeah. We should have a couple of hours a week at least for Saul to teach the kids because he's such a great academic. He's such a great teacher. Um, why, why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we creating experimentation? And the answer is we have vested interests that are incentivized to prevent that from happening. And so, you know, it's sad because we're supposedly for our children and we're for our future but yet we're allowing a certain group of people to pin us down to an old style antiquated way of thinking that is not helping anybody. And, and by the way, it's fraying the system. You know, I, I don't think he would mind me saying this and I won't mention his name, but I was in the national mentoring program. And in 1991, I met a young man, he was 13. Um, and my responsibility was to pay for his, college. So even though I was at a lot of school debt, I said, I mean, his, his, his high school tuition, excuse me. And even though I had a lot of school debt, I said, okay, no problem. I'm going to pay for his t tuition to Monsignor Scanlon, the Catholic high school. He was an African-American kid and he was 13. And they bumped him along, David, and he did not have the reading skills sufficient to be in the ninth grade. He did not. Okay. And so now what do you do? And by the way, very bright kid, but, you know, for whatever reasons, you know, socioeconomic and others, he was bumping along. And so we had to take a pause, get him training, get him tutoring, get him scaled. And guess what happens? He starts learning. His self-esteem goes up. His confidence goes up. He starts doing better. You know, there's a virtual cycle to once you're doing better, you want to continue to do better. 
And today he's uh, in his mid forties and he's got a wonderful job and he's raising three beautiful kids. And so, so again, and by the way, I'll also point out that I had mentees that hit the skids and hit the wall. I'm not trying to be idealistic about this. You're, you know, you're dealing with human beings. Some of them are going to be successful. Others of them are not going to be successful. It's just the nature of the way this stuff happens. But we got to try, you know, we have to, we have to push it, you know? Anyway, those are my thoughts. I'm sorry to be so long winded about it, but I'm very passionate about it. You know, I, I like that we're kind of all, all over the place. There's, there's so many, you know, different topics to cover. A lot of them dovetail in certain ways. So, so I appreciate it. I, I, you brought up the challenges you've had in 2022. Um, I, I think that, um, the, the crypto issue is, is worth us discussing a little bit, much like the vaccine issue. There, there, there's some that we ended up kind of mm-hmm. finding agreement with in the sense of uh, uh, you, you, you said you were persuaded by my argument that the mandates were, were not a great idea in a social context and civic context, and yet you still maintain your, your belief in, in the vac- vaccine itself. And, and so... A lot of people disagree with us on that, and that's fine. Uh, but I, I'm of the opinion that the right play on on vaccines was uh, for for one to get one if they wanted to lower severity risk, particularly if they were of higher vulnerabilities, morbidity, mm-hmm. re- comorbidity risk. I, I wasn't as animated about it for for small for younger people, but you know, either way, my, my issue had more to do with everyone making their own choice, and then and then really telling the truth to people. Because that's the part I'm really worried about, Anthony. I think it's going to take us a long time to get back public trust because there's been a lot done to undo it. And and I blame President Trump, who I think has has lied to the American people a lot. I blame the media, who's lied to American people a lot. I blame the left, who I think has lied to American people a lot. I blame wokey woke, you know, stuff going on that I think is largely dishonest and and outside the American ethos. But I do unfortunately blame. Some some of the elites a lot. I don't I don't believe in any of the conspiracy theories at all about about the vax, but um, I just wish they had marketed the thing as a flu shot and just said you're going to really limit your your risk if you get it. But but right now we just got a, a bunch of work ahead of us. But anyways, so we've already we've already gone there. I would say the crypto deal is an area that you and I have professionally discussed and, and, and disagreed about in the past. Um, we, there are other areas I'm sure we, we may disagree on certain things as well, but nevertheless, you made a, a really substantial business strategy commitment at your firm, um, into the crypto space. And as you said, it ended up being a difficult timing in 22. And, and you made the comment that perhaps we're at a a bottom because I agree with you. You, when you say, Long-term investors are long-term until they have short-term losses. I, I agree. The problem, of course, is knowing if it's a short-term loss be- because I think that when you deal with an asset class with a lot of history, you know, our friend, our mutual friend, uh, Nassim Taleb would talk about the Lindy effect. You know, I have a lot of, I, I like volatility in dividend growth equities, which is what my firm does. I wish I had had more volatility last year. By the way, do I, can I humble brag real quick? Do you know we were up last year, buddy. Uh, how much were you up? 
Uh, ended up being 4.7. Um, uh, we gave a couple points back in the last two weeks of the year. No, listen, that's great performance. And you and I both know that uh, um, the key to this business long term is really not having permanent capital loss. So that's the key to the business. Yeah. You know, I, I guess. But but I don't think I don't think that when we look at the losses last year, I don't think Beyond Meat is coming back. I don't think I don't think Peloton is going to see its uh, you know summer of twenty twenty level again, right? There's certain things you need diversification. Carvana. You need you, you oh yeah. I mean there, there's there are and of course you know Lehman Brothers, a company you know well um, that 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 there are things that are, become permanent erosion of capital. And I guess my question is. How does one who is very bullish on the long-term story of Bitcoin, how are they able to know in your mind, what, where does the confidence come from in valuing the 2022 downside volatility as a short-term loss versus a statement about the long-term viability of what is a cash flowless asset? Well, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot there. So let me, let me, let me start. I hope it's a no, fair question. I think question. it's a very fair question. Let me start out by saying I was a Bitcoin skeptic. Like you, raised in a value school mentality, like you have had a uh, uh, cash flow mentality, uh, low PE mentality, um, safest ticket to the promised land and so forth. I think this is different and I, I could be wrong about it. And if I am wrong about it, I obviously will own that mistake but I think this is uh, a technology that's going to transform the world. Now, there's people that don't agree with that. That's fine. I've done a tremendous amount of homework on it. What it effectively is, is a delayering mechanism. And so ultimately, uh, it's hard to see it right now because it's early. And people say, well, it's 14 years old. That's not early. And I said, well, that is early because in 1903, uh, the Wright brothers took off. They flew. By 1917, it was still early in the commercial aviation business. In 1888, Alexander Bell discovered the telephone. 14 years later, it was still early. You know, in the inception of the internet, uh, we really didn't get going until we got into Web two and a half. And so, I could be sitting here with you in 1998. We're both old enough to remember 98. I have a fat box computer, a corded mouse and a dial-up modem under my desk. It's whirring and burning and humming to catch a dial tone. It takes 35 seconds for my AOL landing page to arrive. And uh, I have mail, and I can buy a Pez gun from eBay or perhaps a book from Amazon. But what if you beamed in from 2023 and 25 short years later said, hey, by the way, you see this technology um, it's sort of clunky and miserable right now, but you know what's going to happen 25 short years from now, you're going to have ultra wide bandwidth in your house. You're going to have wireless technology. Every person in America is going to have a handheld supercomputer. You're going to be 4K streaming video over this uh, technology. Billions of people will be downloading 4K streams. Uh, you'll have trillions of dollars of transactions happening. And oh, by the way, you're going to go into a global pandemic and you're going to use this technology and things called Zoom, where you're going to be interacting with each other over this system. And it's going to lead to an enormous amount of productivity. So what you're seeing right now here in 98 is a promise. And what you will witness in 2023 is the realization of that promise. And so 
I tell people I can't predict the future, but I can observe the past. And I know the rail system and I know the uh, applications that are being built for the age of digital assets. I think even Buffett has said openly, he said it to Bob Diamond, the former chairman of Barclays. He said it to other banking officials. He fully expects there to be a digital currency. Now, maybe he's expecting it to be a dollarized central bank digital currency from the Federal Reserve. Maybe that will be the case. I don't know. But the technology is there to transact without third parties. And so- Would you acknowledge to your point so far that it is not logically inconsistent that one could be bullish on a technological apparatus around blockchain, a functional utility of technology that is completely separate from one's opinion on the price of Bitcoin? Uh, Yes, but I do think that that's 2017, 2016 thinking. I I do think that- In 2023, I would have probably made that statement in 2017, but after doing six plus years of homework, I would tell you that this asset, and we'll have to see what the SEC calls it, a security or a commodity. It feels like Bitcoin's going in the zip code of commodity. Maybe everything else goes in the zip code of security, but uh, I would say to you that this is an asset. This is a, uh, uh, a digital asset. Uh, It's been constructed in a way that because of its scarcity and because of the transparency and the decentralized nature of its ledger, it it is being adopted. Okay, And it has reached, in my opinion, escape velocity. I would also point out to you, because you're a numbers guy, uh, Bitcoin is 14 years old. Uh, It is the best performing asset over the last 14 years, period, the end, full stop. And so... You say, oh, that's all because of its pure speculation. Um, I don't believe that. I think it's because people have recognized. And remember, remember, like it or not, you and I are now of an older generation. There's a younger generation of people that are now in their 20s and 30s that when they're 35, 45, 50, they're going to see Bitcoin very differently than you and I are seeing Bitcoin. They're going to accept it differently. And it's going to be more adopted. And you know this from Medcalf's law. You know this from some technology stocks that you've owned in your life, I'm assuming that you've owned some technology stocks. As these things scale, they become incredibly powerful. And so Bitcoin's got 100 million wallets. Um, it is scaling. It is a device that's ultimately going to be used to delayer the economy. Uh, the stablecoin businesses, I'm obviously very bullish on things like Circle. Uh, Circle's going to make $400 million this year, net operating income. Uh, because of the float that it has in terms of the, the stable coin and the transactional capability. I have a restaurant. You know the restaurant well, the Hunt and Fish Club. Someday you're going to walk in there. You're going to pay for that meal using your smartphone, a direct wallet-to-wallet transfer of money from your smart wallet to Hunt and Fish Club smart wallet. You're going to avoid the 3 to 3.5% charge from MasterCard and Visa. Uh, and a, a restaurant like that that has a 15% margin. If I'm going to avoid a 3% charge, I'm going to boost the margins of that restaurant by 20%. That is a dramatic savings. Okay. If you listen to the economic advisors from El Salvador that visited me during the UN General Assembly meetings in September, 
Um, they have expats that send money back to their family members in El Salvador. Uh, to do that now, most of these people are unbanked. They go to the Western Union. They go to MoneyGram. They say, hi, I'd like to give $1,000 to my mom back in El Salvador. Here's 10 $100 bills. Western Union or MoneyGram takes one of those, 10%, puts it in their pocket. $900 goes to mom. A wallet-to-wallet transfer, according to the economic advisors that the president of El Salvador would sell, save the El Salvadorians, the citizens and the expats, $400 million a year. And I want you to stop and think about the magnitude of all this. My, one of my mentors, Bill Miller, who's a big value investor and transitioned into growth, uh, owns a ton of Bitcoin. He owns a ton of Amazon. He would tell you that this is going to be a rail system that people use. And, you know, you could be a skeptic about it and you could be uh, somebody that doesn't believe it. And you may be right. I've been humbled by life, David, and I've been humbled by markets and maybe you'll have me on in five years and I'll say, wow, I really got that wrong. Uh, the billions of dollars that went into the applications, the billions of dollars that went into the venture capital around these technologies to grow these businesses. It's a very large group of people. They all got this wrong. Uh, that may be the case, but I do think it's reached escape velocity. And I do think, you know, when I, when I sit with my friends at Fidelity, who've onboarded Bitcoin and are now allowing for Bitcoin investments in their 401ks, or I talk to the, the new Blackstone Bitcoin Trust, which I happen to be an investor in, and I talk to the guys, I'm sorry, I meant to say BlackRock, when I talk to the guys at BlackRock yes. that are building that Bitcoin Trust, and they're explaining to me why they're doing it and what the value proposition is, I'm with them. Now, I could be wrong. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not smart enough. I, 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 I don't want to. I don't want to. Bill Gates said the Bill wanna... Gates said the internet was a fad. It was the mid '90s. Uh, he's a brilliant guy. So obviously he adapted and pivoted when he realized that he was wrong about saying it was a fad. There were people that had horses and carriages. They said, "Well, that horseless carriage is a fad." There were people that watched the early stage aviation. Said there'll never be a commercial application for that. Um, I'm not. I'm not sitting here saying that. With great certainty. I think I'm sized appropriately. It's a very bad year, uh, but I think I'm sized appropriately where uh, if I've got this completely wrong, we'll recover. We'll go on to find other things to to do. But if I have it right and we're in a high volatility situation due to the early stage of it, if it's March of 2000 when the NASDAQ bubble collapsed uh, and a lot of my friends said, okay, I'll never own a technology stock again. I'm like, oh, okay, I don't know if that's a great idea. Turned out that technology was the best investment over the forward 22 years. Well, let's talk about that because do you know what the NASDAQ has compounded at for the last 22 years? I don't. I, I, I could look at it. It was at five. It was at five. 3% a year. It's up 3% yeah. a year for 22 years. But Amazon's not. And Amazon a, and, and No, Netflix. no, no, it isn't. You're right. But I don't want to cherry pick one, one massive name. I'm saying this is a difficult thing to wrap our arms around, that sometimes certain things can go the way we believe and the investment outcome be very different. I made the comment on an investment podcast I did today that I think more technological progress has taken place in the last 20 years than in the 5,000 years before it. And we're up 3% a year. 
in a period of time where just buying Corox, Procter Gamble, and Johnson Johnson would have made you 14% a year or whatever, right? You cannot make up. Now, I'm cherry-picking a start date of March of 2000 and an end date of January 2023. You were obviously cherry-picking the, the Bitcoin start number back to when it you know was at what, six cents or whatever. But my point is that this is, this is the concern I would have about the thesis. We have seen explosive technology growth. The cloud didn't exist. Handheld computing didn't exist. Um, the entire world has changed. And someone who went long around the thesis of the hype at the wrong entry point 22 years later, and don't even get me started on the sharp ratio because they did this pitiful 3% return with whopping volatility of multiple 50, 60, 70% drawdowns along the way. And their payoff has been 3% per year and not in a two, three, five year bad period, a 22 year period, which included in it the biggest bull market in mankind history. So I, I think that that doesn't answer anything about whether or not the Bitcoin story is going to work or not. But it does tell us that investing is filled with sometimes people getting premises right and conclusions wrong. Yeah, listen, I, and, and in this case, I still think we have to talk more about the listen, premises. I'm, 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 I'm with you on a lot of the stuff that you're saying. And, I, and again, I don't, I'm not certainly not trying to cherry pick. And, you know, I made my investments in Bitcoin at the 16, 17, 18,000 level in October, November, December of 2020. So if I had uh, left Earth and arrived back at Earth, I would say, okay, well, that hasn't worry. It's been flat for the three years and or the two years. And But you know, then you say, well, whoa, it went like this and then down. There's a lot of people got hammered as a result of that. Um, but Again, and again, this is my opinion, there is near-term volatility. Uh, you included the entire NASDAQ, and I appreciate that. There are coins that are out there that are going to absolute zero. I, you know, so to me, we already have. Already have. We have 20,000 coins. There'll probably be 10 left. So if we do a coin index, we could be sitting here five years and I say, hey, wow, if you bought the, bought the coin index, you got smoked. And by the way, there was this Terra Luna project that was the seventh largest market cap. Uh, people asked me about it a year ago. I said I wouldn't touch it. If you had just indexed yourself and bought the coin index, the seventh largest market cap in the coin index got smoked and taken to zero. So, so I, hear, I hear all those things. This is more of a Bitcoin issue for me because uh, that's really what I own. I own a little bit of Ethereum, but I own mostly Bitcoin. And, you know, I believe that this will become a digital store of value. And if it does, if it scales, uh, it'll be worth the market capitalization of gold or, or above the market capitalization of gold because I think it will be perceived to be more valuable, more portable than gold. Uh, and if I'm right about that, I think my investors will be very well rewarded, um, but they'd have to take a longer term view than a few months. And, and, uh, and listen, it is a... Do you, do you think it is, it is an that asset is, that is down? But again, there's a lot of assets in the uh, in the growth space and the tech space that are down as well. I I think that um, it being down is the least of my concerns. Like I don't feel any um, gloating about the fact that we haven't invested in it for for clients. I do have a lot of clients coming saying, "Oh, thank you for keeping me away from that whole thing." 
But the but that my issue there is I kept them away from it because they didn't really understand it other than they had friends telling them they got rich quick yeah. on it. And I will not invest someone's yeah, money I don't, because I think you yeah, can get rich quick. I don't like that. I, th I think that's hurt Bitcoin. I think but, all of that, that. But see, I don't, I don't, I don't believe. I don't believe that there were three percent of people who owned Bitcoin that could make the arguments you're trying to make. I don't think it's one percent. I think that the bulk of people buying mm -hmm. it were buying it for the get rich easy story, and I've never once. Yeah in history seen that story end well when people are buying an asset yeah. in mass mm -hmm. you talk about escape velocity they're buying at scale out of ignorant delusion versus thoughtful fundamental consideration well, i don't think those stories well, end well. i, I and, and we have those stories and go back again go back to the nasdaq of course the uh, a lot of those stories or tulips you know, so. but but i again i think this is uh, i think it's different again i could be wrong um, I do think that what you're saying is reason to scare people from it. I do think this year's past performance or 2022's performance uh, will scare people from it. Uh, but I do believe that as this adopts, as it scales, as the applications grow, I think this will be a very valuable asset. And so the question is, you know, what are people's time horizon? How are they thinking about it? Um, I'm thinking about it in that way. Uh, let's stay in touch on it. You know, we'll, we'll see where it is in six months, 12 months. But that's what I wanted to give you a chance to, to talk about because of what you've gone through with FTX and with SBF. That's a different um, thing. I want to, I wonder if you believe, there, you have an interesting, there's a bullish argument you have for Bitcoin that's somewhat contrarian, but I'm intrigued by it. I can't get there, Anthony, because I don't believe the whole story. Mm -hmm. And yet if I did, your thesis is kind of more interesting to me that all of the problems with alternative coins, with the um, the lack of regulatory oversight and an out-and-out -out fraud that may have been committed and, and so forth, that those things could end up being positives in the end for Bitcoin as it sort of gets a kind of Amazon-like brand around it versus a pets.com brand around it. I don't buy the thesis, but prima facie, I think it's perfectly acceptable. But is that a fair summary of your view that that all of the shenanigans we've seen with peripheral elements of crypto, it's over $2 trillion of value that has been destroyed, that those things could end up being an argument for Bitcoin? Is that a fair? Well, you know, yes. But, you know, listen, I mean, we, we got to, again, put the whole thing into context. So there were, I don't know, $22 trillion of value destroyed. There was uh, $50 billion of value destroyed in Tesla yesterday. So um, we have to put it yeah. into context. There's been... But you have an operational company, though. I, you have cash flows. I, so it's all, I, under, it's I understand that. But you have, as you, as we both know, when the Fed is raising rates, if you told me Fed is going to bump rates 425 basis points, the mortgage rates were going to triple in the United States, what would that do to asset prices? And what would that do uh, I'm frankly surprised where asset prices are right now. I thought they'd be down more, frankly. So, 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 so I, I'm looking at it in the context, the macroeconomic context. I'm also looking at it as a technology that I believe is transformative. And so, I'm, I'm making the statement to you that to understand the blockchain, to understand Bitcoin, if I'm correct, if it is this massive delayering mechanism, and for five thousand years. 
we've always had intermediaries uh, buy and sell for us. Uh, there could come a day that because of the blockchain and commodities associated with the blockchain, a digitized dollar, a Bitcoin, we can transact with each other without third party intervention or governmental control. I think that's going to be very valuable. And now, again, I'm humble. I could be wrong about this. I'm not speaking with uh, definition or certitude. Uh, I don't, you know, and I think, you know, listen, where I've gotten in trouble at Skybridge in our portfolio, I've had people working here that did speak with definition and certitude. We'll just leave it at that. And there's no such thing. Okay. There's no such thing. I'm humble enough to talk to you about this and say, yes, this is my belief. This is my thesis. My thesis uh, did poorly in a year where risk and technology did poorly. Let's look at it over three years. And, uh, Let's see what happens. But, you know, listen, I, I'm always, you know, I always love our conversations and uh, I hope you'll uh, hope you'll invite me back. I mean, you're the man. Of course. Of course I will. I, I appreciate it. I hope you feel I gave you a fair no, shake to make the case. You, you like everything. You make your case. Well, there's areas of disagreement. There's areas of agreement. But the one thing I just want listeners to know, you know, Mooch takes a lot of uh, SH in the press because there's some people on the left, still mad at him that he was on Team Trump. There's a lot of people on the right mad at him because he turned on Trump. There, there's Or Trump well, turned on him, well, whatever you want to say. you're getting closer to the truth, though. See, that's the thing. So I appreciate our yeah. conversations. And I think also what I love about our conversation, we can disagree and keep our friendship. Okay. And by the uh, way, absolutely. you're intellectually open-minded where I may be able to sway you on something. You've been able to sway me on things. And so I love that. I love that about our, I love that about our conversations and our relationships. For those that um, have decided, and this is not something Anthony knew I was going to say, but I'm going to say it to close out our podcast. For those that have decided that they think it is worth celebrating that Skybridge had a tough year or Anthony had a tough year or Bitcoin's down or this or that or whatever people like, because high profile people make enemies over time and whatever. I will tell you that I have met less than five people in my life that I would bet on without knowing what they're doing, just betting on them. And Anthony is one of those people. Well, it's very sweet. I appreciate that. I, I appreciate that. Somebody asked me where Skybridge going. I said, let me tell you something. We operate with high integrity. When you operate with high integrity, opportunities abound. Uh, there were two people in my office today could be going in that direction. Who knows? Uh, I'm open-minded. You know, the opportunities abound. I think the lesson for everybody Stay true to yourself and uh, protect your family's last name. I would never do anything to dishonor my dad's last name. I may do something that's misguided from an investment perspective, or I may make a mistake politically, but I'm never going to make an ethical mistake or one of uh, lack of integrity. You have to you have to do that in life uh, because th that affords you so many chances in America. And you know, uh, one of my favorite, favorite writers is F. Scott Fitzgerald. And he got one thing dramatically wrong. It's a very famous quote of his. He said, there are no second acts in America. And I think America has proven over the 100 years since he wrote that, uh, that there are second acts and people who have high integrity can get them. And just keep that in mind when you're uh, operating your businesses. Amen. Anthony, thanks for believing in the free and virtuous society. Thanks for uh, our friendship and for the conversation. And we'll look forward to having you back again on Capital Record. Love it, man. Thank you.
Yeah, I don't, I don't know how you all felt. That ended up being a lot less crypto talk and a lot more everything else talk. And I kind of loved it. Um, you know, hopefully on the crypto side, you got to hear Anthony's perspective. You hear some of my pushback, why I do not believe the sort of an analogy to a kind of internet moment is equivalent to what's happening with the price of a Bitcoin. Um, and yet I certainly respect his willingness to defend his viewpoint and rationale. And, and I think you were familiar with how I feel on it. Um, I do love the guy. I love his transparency. I love his candor. Um, he, for those who happen to be a friend of his, they know he, he can be a very sacrificial, uh, guy and that doesn't get covered a lot in the press. There's a lot of people that hate him on the left. A lot of people hate him on the right. And, um, you, I, I don't hate him. I, I really think the world of Anthony for a lot of reasons, even though we have this disagreement on, on crypto. But I, but I hope you've got a lot out of that. I hope you're enjoying Capital Record and I hope you're ready for next week where I'm going to bring on Dr. Art Laffer and we're going to have a very serious conversation about taxes. And the week after that, I'm going to bring on Dr. Rusty Reno and he and I are going to have a very serious conversation about theology and a market economy. So uh, Laffer next week, Rusty the week after. We got some real great Capital Record episodes going on for you. Thanks, as always, for listening to National Review's Capital Record.